Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome today's fantastic panel, but before I uh, do that, a little bit of background. It's 75 years since the publication of Beveridge's radical, ambitious five, <laughs> five Giants report, the blueprint for the modern welfare state. It aimed to tackle what Beveridge identified as the five predominant social ills facing British society at the time, want, disease, ignorance, idleness, and squalor. We've come a long way since then, but how are we actually doing on those key measures? What does the ideal 21st century welfare state look like? Um, and would Be Be Beveridge recognize, recognize it? So to help us discuss these big questions, we are very lucky to have Nicholas Timmins, author of Five Giants, um, and senior fellow at the Institute uh, for uh, Government. Five Giants has just been, th the third edition has just been published. Yeah. Yep. So, it is <laughs> absolutely enormous, but I read it when it first came out, and um, it's a wonderful book. And uh, uh, So we're delighted to have you uh, here, Nick. Uh, Anna Minton, a reader in architecture at the University of East London and author of Big Capital, Who is London For?, is currently on the Northern Line, but she's approaching slowly um, and will be here, I am sure. And last but not least, Stephen Armstrong, journalist and author of The New Poverty and The Road to Wigan Pier uh, Revisited. So let me just tell you how we're going to do this. It's ingenious. Um, Nick is going to open for about seven minutes, which, given that he's written a book that's 17,000 pages long, is uh, pretty amazing. Um, it's not that long. But, um, now, we were going to have Anna. If she's here, then we'll have Anna. And she is going to focus, remember those five giants, on squalor and want. So she's got five minutes to do squalor and want. Um, and then Stephen is going to come in with five minutes, and he's going to do idleness and ignorance. Um, and then, because you'll think, hang on, that's only four, we'll then revert to Nick, who will pop back in with disease. Um, and having discussed uh, our problems, our challenges, our um, we will have a conversation up here, and then we'll invite questions from you before we wrap up at 2 o'clock. So um, it's going to be a fantastic and fascinating hour. Without further ado, over to you, Nick. Right, okay. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for coming. Um, <clears throat> so I've got five minutes, seven minutes, and 75 years since Beveridge, which in fact is my direct interest in this, and that's 15 years a minute, I think, so it's going some. But what I'm here partly to argue, though only partly, is that the welfare state still exists. We don't talk about it much anymore, but it does. And after seven years of austerity, it's clearly under acute pressure, and I'm not trying to deny that. You know, the great NHS achievement of the 2000s, which was the spectacular drop in waiting times, may be about to be lost, and possibly a loss for good, given what it costs to get them down. Universal credit is in pretty big trouble, and the cuts still to come in the working age benefit will, will, working age benefit bill may land it and those who depend on it in yet bigger trouble. And Grenfell Tower has brought home the issues around social housing brutally. So I'm not trying to be Panglossian, but the fact is the welfare state is still here. It still costs roughly 500 billion of government expenditure annually, or roughly two thirds of the total. And that's roughly what it's taken, adjusted for ups and downs in the economy ever since the early 1980s. And I've been lucky enough to report on bits of it ever since the mid-1970s. And even back then, loads of people were telling me that with ageing population and all that, it was all unsustainable. But we are still here. And there have, in fact, been periods when it's been under more sustained ideological attack than it feels right now, despite the spending problems. 
When I started out on the book back in 1993, almost everyone to whom I mentioned the fact that I was writing a welfare state history instantly quipped, well, you'd better be quick about it before the thing disappears. And that felt very, very close to the bone. I mean, Michael Portillo these days is uh, chiefly known as a fusion trousered train spotter. But back then, he was chief... And a moral maze panellist. And a moral maze panellist. <laughs> but back then, he was chief secretary of the Treasury. And he just announced a fundamental expenditure review starting with social security, health and education, the very core of the welfare state. And he was looking, he declared, for areas where better targeting can be achieved or the public sector can withdraw altogether. And the state pension, he said, was likely to become nugatory. When opposition in peace sought to protest, Portillo gleefully pointed out that Labour had just set up a commission on social justice to think the unthinkable. And John Smith, the then Labour leader, had declared we should be prepared to re-examine everything. I've not ruled anything out of court. So what Portillo's happily declared that what was source for the goose was source for the gander. Now by 2000, when I was writing the second edition, no one made the better be quick about it joke. Because New Labour, controversial though some of its changes were, was clearly refurbishing significant parts of the welfare state. And this time around, no one made the joke. But that may be because we, and by we I mean politicians and the general public, have pretty much stopped talking about the welfare state. It's more or less fallen out of the political lexicon, as has the concept of social security. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, Hansard, the daily record of parliamentary debates, recalls that the welfare state was mentioned on average around 170 times a year. By the mid-2000s, that had fallen to 50, a drop of two-thirds. And again, in the 80s and 90s, Social Security got around 2,000 mentions a year, and by the mid-2000s, that was down to 370 annually, an 80% decline. And instead, the concept of the welfare state has been split apart. So we tend to talk, on the one hand, about welfare, an American import of a phrase, which is often used to conflate the entire social security budget into one, so that it seems to mean only means-tested benefits for the unemployed. And on the other hand, we talk about public services, by which we chiefly mean health and education. And politicians of all parties have been complicit in this. Back in the 1990s, Peter Lilly, who on most people's reckoning would be one of the more right-wing politicians who've been Secretary of State for Social Security, still lectured on the subject of constraining the costs of social security. It was the long-forgotten John Moore who first at cabinet level started using the term welfare, but it was Labour who split the idea apart, talking about welfare and public services. For example, the odd technical paper aside, none of their myriad green and white papers had the words social security in the title. And the Conservatives in the coalition and since have taken this much further, contrasting the hard-working families up at the crack of dawn to do their shift work against those sleeping off a life on benefits, when, of course, many of those hard-working families were, of course, receiving in-work tax credits and housing benefit. And in this discourse, the meaning of the word welfare has more or less been turned on its head. It now has precious little to do with faring well. Rather, it's almost a term of abuse. To be on welfare is to be on Benefit Street, or part of the Great British Benefits handout, somewhere that no one in their right mind wants to be. It divides us into us and them. Them, the feckless poor, and us who pay for it, despite the fact that we pretty much all, over a lifetime, gain from the welfare state, from child benefit and child tax credits, to schooling, health, and onto a pension, to quote just some examples. So my view is that those politicians who really do believe that we are all in this together, you know, from Theresa May, who frets about just about managing, to those on the Labour and the SNP side who profess to be concerned about the poor, should reclaim some of that language, particularly the concept of social security, with a sense of collectiveness and inclusion that provides 
and something that the language of welfare has long since lost. But to return to my beginning, we will, I'm pretty sure, spend most of this session talking about the problems, and they are very real. But on another view, after seven years of austerity, it's remarkable how little structural change there has been to the welfare state. As the very last line of my book puts it, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also slightly seriously, in a line that I basically owe to Matthew as it came out of a long conversation we had, the welfare state over the years has in fact repelled many of the assaults upon it, whether by its friends to modernise it or by its enemies to destroy it. Thank you. So, Anna, you've joined us, but I think it's not fair to throw you straight in. Uh, so, um, we'll have you talking to us about squalor and want in a few minutes, if that's okay. But, Stephen, do you mind if we shift the order and ask you to, to give us some thoughts on idleness and ignorance? So, I think I agree uh, with many of the things you've said. And, in a way, the, the, the points I want to make are about how... Beveridge would look at the world now if he was to think about ignorance and if he was to think about idleness. When he was writing, he was really talking about a time when it was assumed that you had a job, largely, and that there would be periods in between that, maybe when there was a recession or when you, you, you had your employer went bankrupt or something, where you would be unemployed for a while and then you would get a job. And that was really... That was his thinking because that had sort of been thinking since the 1800s when we first came across the idea of unemployment. Uh, and the idea of poverty and unemployment first sort of came together. Ever since then, all the way up to the 30s, that was the case. You were unemployed for a short period of time or a certain period of time for a particular reason, and that's why you were in poverty. But where we are now, since 2016, is that 60% of the families who are in poverty are also in work. So we're in a situation where the idea of uh, work as a way out has disappeared. It's the case that if you do get a job, as everyone tells you to get a job, that doesn't mean your situation improves. So if Beveridge has come to this now, he would have to understand that we may not have completely restructured the welfare state. What we have done is we've entirely restructured the economy and the world of work. And the people who suffer very, very, very badly at the hands of that are, as usual, the bottom 30% of the population. So what we saw but in the 90s, we saw a series of small tweaks and nips and tucks to the economy. We saw, um, my most hated is the 1994 deregulation of employment agencies. And you should try opening a conversation with that at a dinner party. <laughs> that was John Redwood. And what he, previously, you had to have a license to employ people and run their lives. Now, we could all get together and set up the RSA Employment Agency and we could run the HR for Amazon or Sports Direct. That's essentially what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years, is, is people who are really not particularly qualified are now running the entire HR function for huge warehouses, huge companies around the UK. Those companies all also have branches out in uh, uh, Krakow, or, or, and they and bus in much, much cheaper labour in these short-term employment contracts. So you're finding that the ability of people in certain areas, the, the most obvious one is the... Um, the way the sports directors sat on the site of the mine that, that was once there, um, is, that, is that not only is it impossible to get a proper functioning job, but a number of the jobs there have been people who've literally been flown in to take your job. And that, I think, produces a lot of tension. The, the, we've seen zero-hours contracts. We've seen the fake self-employment. Recently, I don't know if anyone's been following the, um, 
Lee Day case against Uber and Deliveroo, where people are self-employed so that the employer has to pay no tax, has to pay no sick pay, has to pay no holiday pay, but they have to do exactly what their employer tells them. They have no freedom to choose. They are essentially employees in all but the way they're rewarded. We've got uh, umbrella companies. I met a teacher who was working for a special needs school and uh, the special needs school told her she had to go through their own employment agency. So then having started that, she found that she was being paid by an umbrella company. So she was being paid by a company that was being paid by a company that was being paid by a company, which was the school, which went back. And there was, this was money from Essex County Council to look after their special needs kids. And all along the way, people were taking little bits of this money out, just pulling it away. So she was getting less. She had very little idea of contact with her employer. And she didn't really know what was going on with these kids with high demands. So as this collapses, the other tragedy, as far as I'm concerned, is that we've seen the collapse of social mobility. What uh, Beveridge did is he set out, and we should be clear, he didn't set out to solve these problems because he was a socialist. He set out to solve these problems because he thought that if you did, the country would be richer. He was about producing a, a, you know, a white-hot economy. He was about paying back the war debts. It was, it was a very, very economic position. It was not a kindly position for all the good it did. He, that was not his intention. Um, and as a result, we saw a huge explosion in social mobility. Uh, the reasons for which is we can discuss afterwards. Um, and in researching the book prior to the uh, New Poverty, I went to Wigan and did a book, wrote to Wigan Pier, and I met the uh, children of the people that Orwell had met when he went to Wigan. Uh, the, the, my favourite, I mean, they, they, this story that I'll tell you, you could repeat this for every single one of the kids that I met, who are now obviously uh, elderly men. But... Uh, there's a guy called Jim Hammond is one of the people that Orwell met. And at the time Orwell met him, he was an unemployed, blacklisted communist coal miner who was living in a two-up, two-down in Skulls in Wigan. And when Orwell met him, his wife was pregnant. And in his belly, her belly, sorry, was Tony Hammond. And when I met Tony Hammond four years ago, he was a retired High Court judge. So, from 1930 to 1990, we saw that family's lot change and it wasn't an unusual story. That was not remarkable, because that happened to generations, two generations away, and now that has stopped. And after I met uh, Tony Hammond, I was in Scholes um, that same day, and I met a couple of kids at this community centre called Sunshine House, an amazing community centre. If you ever go to Wigan, go to Sunshine House. And uh, I was talking to one of these, these kids, and I was saying, so what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, well, on, on my estate, there's men who breed dogs, and I like the dogs, so I think I might be a vet. And I said, well, there's a Tony Hammond, who literally, round the corner from here, born, da 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 high court judge. And he said, mate, if, I was, if you were going to make me a vet, you would need a wizard to cast the spell. That was as, as likely as he thought his chances of change were. So that, the final point to that, is there is a chart which I won't show you. I wouldn't even show you if it's on there. It's a long, long chart. If you look up the GMB, uh, General Municipal Boilermakers, uh, Survey of Wages last year, they published it uh, as a press release. It's online. It's freely available. And it records, using ONS data, the salaries of something like 150 professions over the last 10 years. And what you find is that whatever you do for a living, pretty much, unless you're an air traffic controller, your salary has gone down. And it's continuing to go down in real terms. So we can think, well, maybe these bottom 20%, we're not there, it's fine. But this is what's happening. This is the edge of our world of employment. These nips and dragging away of rights and this crushing down. 
and it's going to hit all of us unless we understand it enough to do something about it. So <clears throat> the second uh, area is ignorance. Briefly. Yeah, really briefly. I will skip over the school stuff. Uh, the, the key point of this is that if you look at broadband reach, if you look at Ofcom's figures on broadband reach, you find that the poorest 20% of the country do not have broadband. So they aren't able to take part in our Twitter bait, debates and, you know, bomb their MP with, uh, with uh, angry emails. But worse than that, the universal credit can only be applied for online. You can't apply for it by going into Job Centre. You can't phone up. So if you don't have access to broadband, you can't apply anywhere other than, say, a library. As part of your universal credit, you will have a universal job match, which will be you have to spend a certain amount of t hours on the computer recording your job hunts. So if you don't have broadband at home, you've got to queue in, in, the, in the library. And if you go to Newcastle, I, I went to Newcastle Library and saw the queues of people waiting to get their two-hour slot on the computer. It was like, again, in Orwell, the, 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 the scrum outside the dock. So this is broadly where I see ignorance is going. Ignorance is that we are wiping out five, one in five people from taking part in the debate and then penalising them for being that poor. And that, I think, is a bad thing. Thank you very much, Stephen. Anna, are you, are you kind of... Recovered. Very good. For late arrival. I heard those deathly words, your Northern Line train has been suspended. Um, anyway, I... Squalor and want. I'm going to take a similarly gloomy <coughs> view uh, to Stephen. Um, and I'm going to talk about squalor and want, but particularly as it pertains to housing and the housing crisis following the research I just did for my book on the housing crisis, um, Big Capital. But I'm going to follow Nick very much in talking about the language uh, of housing, because actually the language of housing has become completely incomprehensible. Um, it's been twisted in a similar way to the language of welfare, changing from social security to, to, to welfare. But actually, it's also become completely opaque uh, and impossible uh, to understand as housing has been stealthily changed into a more and more financialized system where it's viewed primarily as a commodity and as an asset rather than as a, a public good uh, and as a human right. And this is how we view housing for the poorest among us. And that's the relationships there with the squalid uh, conditions um, that, that I encountered, conditions that simply didn't exist when I was growing up, I don't think, in, in the 1970s and the 1980s. And the relationship between choosing between heating and eating and the necessity of having to go to food banks, again, you know, completely unheard of uh, when I was growing up. So when I was growing up, it was the tail end of council housing, um, when actually we all knew what council housing meant. Council housing was public housing. Most people lived either in uh, homes they owned, uh, or they lived in council housing. A third of the population lived in council housing. I think in London it was almost approaching uh, uh, half um, uh, in 1980. Very small private uh, rented sector. And that changed uh, in the 80s when uh, Margaret Thatcher's policy of right to buy saw more than two million homes uh, sold off. At, they were not replaced 
the problem with right to buy wasn't so much the selling off of those homes, it was the fact that councils were not allowed to use the money to build new council homes. So we saw this shift in policy whereby uh, instead of building council homes, we started to subsidise people on lower incomes through housing benefit uh, to live in what started to become known as social housing, confusing term number one. What is social housing? Confusing term number two, what is uh, affordable housing? Uh, and we have this whole raft of types of housing now. We've got uh, affordable housing, shared ownership, part rent, part buy, private renting. That can cover anyone from terrible conditions in the sort of lowest end of the private rented sector to luxury apartments. And this is all uh, uh, private renting. Um, but just affordable housing is my absolute sort of biggest bugbear linguistically, because affordable housing was redefined by the Conservative government to mean up to 80% of market value or market rent. So London prices, that's an incredibly uh, large amount of money which people on low, medium, even relatively high incomes uh, cannot afford uh, to live in uh, these days. So what's the relationship here between squalor and want? Well, if we go back to social housing, social housing broadly, for simplicity's sake, understand as the cohort of people at the sort of lower end of the wide range of people that once lived uh, in council housing. Council housing was once Bevan intended to be a mixed community for the doctor, the grocer, all living uh, in, in, in the same street. When we sold off lots of our council uh, homes, we residualized council housing and the worst homes, again to be simplistic, uh, tended to become social housing. But then we also have this very large component of people living in social housing who rent privately because there are no longer enough council house houses and housing association houses. And now private renting, more people rent privately than actually live in social housing, uh, and Shelter predicts that nowadays one-third of people on housing benefit live in private rented housing. Shelter predicts that figure will go up to 40% uh, in the next few years, and that is where some of the very worst housing conditions are found at astronomically high rents. There is no regulation on private renting. Some local councils have tried to introduce regulation very successfully in the case of councils like Newham, but again, the Conservative government said regulation could not be rolled out. I don't have time to uh, particularly go into the details of that, but uh, regulation was described uh, as uh, a landlord's tax. And um, some of the conditions are, uh, are quite unbelievable, whereby you can get a two-up, two-down home now, where it can be converted into flats. A flat, all you need to do is add a little primus stove and convert a tiny section into the bathroom. You've got a bed sit and a flat, a two-up, two-down, with five flats, tiny, tiny spaces. Uh, and this is, you know... A flat like that in London will cost in excess of £1,000 a month. Um, but added to that, you no longer get enough housing benefit to pay for those 
rents because housing benefit has been capped because this policy of paying for social housing through housing benefit has seen an exploding housing benefit bill now almost 10 billion pounds a year so to bring this down allegedly housing benefit was capped so housing benefit will only provide about three quarters of your rent so the impact of that is that people no longer have enough money and so of course they keep getting evicted, which leads to all the associated family breakdown, uh, uh, mental health uh, difficulties, and also this domino effect where people keep getting pushed out of more expensive areas uh, into cheaper areas because uh, a borough which pays its tenants more money for housing, like Westminster, for example. Nobody on social housing could afford to live in Westminster, but they might be able to afford to live in Barking and Dagenham. So they get moved out of Westminster, which has fewer and fewer social housing benefit tenants. They live somewhere like Barking and Dagenham. Barking and Dagenham has the same problem. They might move people to Luton, Coventry, Middlesbrough. It is now official Westminster Council policy to house homeless families on its housing list out of the city in, in, in towns and cities uh, like uh, Coventry. And for those of you who have seen the film I, Daniel Blake, that's the sort of story that's followed there where the family, the, the mother of two children, is rehoused uh, up in Newcastle, far from all her networks uh, and uh, anybody uh, at all um, that she knows. So, I mean... I've talked really about the housing crisis and squalor and want in that sense um, because I think that's very, very relevant because when your housing conditions are like that, they reduce you to that utter state actually of destitution. I haven't talked about the criminal end of the housing crisis, the beds in sheds, the trafficking, that's all there as well quite unbelievable conditions which exist in, in especially suburban uh, parts of London. I just want to end with add, by adding one new evil, if I might. I don't know if that's allowed. Yeah. Um, but I am talking about the housing crisis, and I don't think we can have a discussion about the housing crisis without mentioning the Grenfell tragedy. Uh, and for that reason, my new evil would be a complete failure of accountability and democratic representation because the residents of Grenfell repeatedly complained about the conditions they were facing, the unsafe conditions they were facing, and they were repeatedly uh, ignored. And part of the reason for that was the outsourcing of housing to this quango, this arm's length management organization which has occurred, this, this way of dealing with housing at arm's length from, from a democratic uh, uh, system. And what happened at Grenfell, you would expect, and uh, one of the firefighters said, you know, you'd expect to see this in, in Dhaka, a, city, a third world slum, not one of the richest parts uh, of London, one of the richest parts uh, of the world. So I'll stop it there. Thank you. So, uh, Nick, I mean, you, you were going to talk about disease, but I also, I'm also kind of um, tempted to, to ask you to respond. I mean, listening to Anna and Stephen, it's kind of like, you know, abandon hope, you know, uh, unless some combination of a kind of 
economic miracle and Jeremy Corbyn comes along, you know, uh, um, then we're in a kind of spiral of inexorable decline. As a historian, in part, I'm kind of, as well as talking about, about, about disease and health, just, just give us a kind of perspective on whether or not you share this entirely gloomy perspective. Well, um, I think it's quite difficult to get, you know, to get the perspective on it all right, because clearly everything that Stephen and Anna have talked about is truly terrible, but there have been plenty of things like that. I mean, you know, Ken Loach may have denied Daniel Blake, but did Cathy come home in the 60s? Uh, and that was around similar sorts of, similar, similar sorts of issues. Uh, so these things come around and go around. Part of the reason it's like this is that, you know, the economy has struggled ever since the financial crash. I mean, it's Mark Carney's famous lost decade of no wage growth, which hasn't happened since the 19th century. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. Uh, you know, that, I mean, if that's what happens, you get all these effects coming through. Um, and, I mean, when people talk about the welfare state, you know, it is a crucial cog in the economy itself, and it depends entirely upon the economy. How well the economy is doing defines what you can spend what you can take out of people, yeah? So that was, Nick, what I was going to ask. So I'm, I'm, feel free to drop the comments in about health as, as we go along, but I, I want to keep the conversation going if we can. So uh, this is the first question I was going to ask, which is, as Stephen said, when Beveridge developed his plan, he saw it as being a, an, a plan for economic for prosperity. He saw the welfare state as being part of how it was you had a successful economy. Somehow, somewhere along the way, we've lost that, and we have an idea that there is the wealth-creating private sector in the market, and they make money, and then some of that money is taken off them, and it's poured into public services and into welfare. And the notion that public services and welfare, social security, has an economic purpose has got lost. Why, what, what do you think is the point at which it gets lost, and, and can it come back? Well, I think it, I think it sort of gets lost... It gets lost somewhere from the 90s on. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's very interesting when I quoted Portillo earlier, Ken Clark, who was his boss, the Chancellor, you know, his response to that was, we need, a wel you know, we need a welfare state because people need to know that when the you know, middle manager loses his job, he's got the comfort of sure, you know, he looked after him, get retrained, get back into one. So there's always been a tension, but the sort of, it's partly you know, a relative triumph of, relative triumph of neoliberalism. And it's partly a function of globalisation, which I don't think anyone, you know, you could, the idea that you sort of stop that, you know, socialism in one country was tried in France and it didn't work. Um, but it's partly a function of globalisation, and it, in the, it's destroyed a lot of jobs, moved a lot of jobs. Uh, so that's made life harder. And it's a fact that, you know, there was the financial crash and the credit crunch and everything that came with it, uh, which has, which, which is, you know, not been good. And at some point, because I am an optimist, you know, at some point we will grow away out of that, I trust. So, Anna, just going back to housing, and I'll come up to Tim, but... Can I, can yeah. I just respond yeah. to the next point? Because what I was also wondering about is the function, the, the, the welfare state, pensions, the introduction of the welfare state at the beginning of the 20th century, all of which were workers' benefits, you know, for our industrial economy. We were an industrial-based economy and we had to nurture the people who kept that going. When that economy gave way to a financial services-based economy, which we very rapidly moved towards, we also didn't have an economic need to nurture the people who were no longer part of that. I mean, I think we're seeing a backlash now against that in our politics. But just to sort of draw some sort of simple lines. I think that's 
I think partly how I'd see it as a function. I mean, you've talked about as a function of globalization. I'd talk about just simply the move to financial services. You know, financial services workers didn't need the welfare state in the same way as, you know, the previous economic cohort did. Recessions, really. I mean, two two big jobs recessions, and the eighties one was coal, steel, iron, and shipbuilding, and that was globalisation. You could buy this stuff cheaper abroad, and you could you could dig it out the ground and build it here. And then there was a big delayering of, of middle management in the nineteen nineties, which again reflected some of that. So, so the nature of the job market has changed, and the question is, how well has the welfare state been able to respond to that? And if you look at what Labour was trying to do throughout the 2000s, there was the, all the welfare-to-work stuff, minimum wage, you know, underpinning all that. Uh, and there were some significant gains from that throughout the 2000s. Uh, one of the problems we've hit since is that we've, you know, it's, it's the whole problem of the Apples and the Googles and everybody else not paying their taxes. And, you know, Philip Green, multi-billion retailer, right, sells the BHs of, of, into bankruptcy for a quid arranges his tax fares through Monaco, and a large number of his staff would have been on tax credits. And there's something wrong with that. And we just know there's something wrong with that. But fixing that is not, again, within the power of an individual country anymore. Yeah, 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 of course. Which is, um, I think, I, amongst the people I'm fortunate enough to write for, I write for Wired magazine a lot, and which means I interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of uh, unicorn startups, particularly from Scandinavia. And Scandinavia, Sweden has more unicorns than anywhere outside um, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, and speaking particularly to that area, what, what a lot of those entrepreneurs specifically say is that it's the strength of the welfare state that allows them to take risks, that they know if they throw all their money into this company and launch the, Klarna, there's a, a, a big payments company, Klarna, this is opening in the UK. The reason the founder of Klarna says he could found Klarna was because the Swedish welfare system was good enough that he knew he could feed his family if his company failed, so he took the risk. And I just spoke to this guy, Ilka Pannen, who uh, owns Supercell, which is the world's largest mobile gaming company. 100 million people plus play that. The reason it was successful is because the Finnish government invested uh, half a million euros in it to help build the economy. And he now refuses to not pay tax because he thinks it's crucial to pay back into um, education and healthcare because that's what got him to where he was. So the, the thing is, elsewhere in the world, the argument is, is, is still clear that if we have a good, solid support network, we can create wealth. It's just in the UK we don't have that anymore. So, so let's move on to that, that, that question, if we can, which is the question of the... The alliance, the, the alliance of public support, which is necessary for, for the welfare state. And now, clearly, Anne, if you look at social housing, what happens in the history of social housing is that social housing moves from being seen as a form of housing for the respectable working classes to being seen as a form of housing for people who have no other choice. But yet, when you look at the welfare state, there are a huge number of people who rely on housing benefit, a huge number of people who rely upon working family, working tax credits, a huge number of people who rely on the state pension. But yet that doesn't seem to have shifted, and may, you, know, you may argue that it's shifting now, and it may be shifting now, but for decades politicians have been able to get votes out of saying that the welfare state is basically a kind of something which saps our initiative, saps our energy. They've been able to be kind of divisive about it, to define those people on welfare as the other, what, what, why is that, do you think, that, that, that it's been so hard to mobilise an alliance, even though so many of us, in one way or another, rely on it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 th I think 
you're completely right in what you say, but I think that message about working tax credits, a lot of people in work getting housing benefit, that message has never really got across. And it is seen as sort of tinkering sort of at the edges. You know, the broad picture remains, you know, if you're out of work, you know, uh, if you're workless, again, another new terminology, um, you know, you are... You know, you're 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 feckless and 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 you're on benefits. Um, social housing is a housing of, of last resort, whereas it used to be a widespread tenure for you know a broad number of people. I mean, I think selling off so much of the housing stock and making such a virtue of home ownership really lost that principle of universality in housing. I mean, seeing as social housing, council housing, was to start off with, broadly speaking, you know, people on lower middle incomes lived in it. You know, you might have got the odd beverage type, uh, Bevan type doctor, but it started off as being a tenure for working people, but people on slightly lower incomes. But by getting rid of so much of it, and actually, you know, the better portion of it, you completely lost that sense of universality. And once universality goes with benefits, that's it. I mean, hence, you know, the huge debates around child benefit. I mean, you know, when we think about the NHS and the BBC, they still have huge national love because, you know, most people will go to A&E if they have an accident. A lot of people will still choose to have their babies in maternity units, you know, they are still universal services. Housing simply isn't. Have decided not to talk about it. And there's, a, there's a incredible moment in the 2015 election where uh, Ed Miliband's being interviewed and someone says, are you the party of the welfare state? And he says, no, we're not. No, no, we're not. We're not the party of people on benefits. Well, if politicians talk like that, is it any surprising the public reacts? And it's, you know, it's chicken and egg. You know, if you if you if you if you if you look at if you look at the British Social Attitudes Survey, you know it's crystal clear that public attitudes towards benefits have hardened enormously over about twenty five years, uh, and the biggest shift was amongst Labour voters, which partly explains why Ed Miliband responds like that. And it's kind of chicken and egg, isn't it? You, if you if 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 no one leads, who follows? It's. Uh, so do you have that? Do you, I'm just just we, maybe we might, we might get equanimity on this, Stephen, but. You know, when you were back talking to those people in Wigan, if you were to, I'm, you know, I don't want to caricature them, but I, I suspect that had you said to them what are the kind of biggest problems with the welfare state, they'd have probably said immigration and scrounging, quite high up on the list. So why is it that the welfare state became so unpopular, even amongst those people, that it was still continuing to help? Well, there was a, a, a Channel 5, obviously, uh, steeped in guilt for Benefit Street, <laughs> uh, put out a, a very good shelter documentary in December 2016. Uh, and Shelter helped support the documentary. And the, the filmmaker they got was a young British filmmaker who spent the previous two years in Syria. So that's the level of the previous story he'd been covering. And he came to the UK, they gave him a camera and said, do housing in the UK. And he thought, well, this is a dossy job. That'll be fine. I know what my story is. And at the, at the launch of the program, I was at the launch, and he was visibly furious. He was really cross at the beginning. And the first, I asked him some gentle question. The first thing he says is, the British media are culpable 
for this situation, that what they have done is they've systematically abused and, and, and assaulted those least able to defend themselves. He looked across the, the, the cuttings, and you can do this. In fact, Full Fact did it at the last election. There's uh, Swedish researchers who've done this. If you look at the language that's used to talk about welfare in the media, yes, a lot of those terms that we've been talking about aren't used, but that's because those terms have become scrounging, tourist. Those, that, that's the language. I mean, this, this is, I urge you to look it up, as Hillary Clinton would say as she lost the election. I urge you to look it up online. That there are, there are reports on this um, which show how, how that has happened. And once you alienate and demonize people, even the people in that situation, because nobody wants to say they're in poverty. The first person I interviewed ever for either of these books was a 19-year-old kid who'd been sanctioned off benefits and was on £2.50 a day. So that's almost Sudan-level um, poverty as far as the, who was living in a homeless hostel in Manchester. My first question to him was, so what's it like living in poverty? And he said, I don't live in poverty. I don't live in poverty. No one wants to, no one wants to identify with that. I mean, the JRF has done this great piece of research trying to understand what the language problems are. The British hate the idea of poverty being British. We think of it as being starving kids. We need to understand that that's not what we're talking about, that it's still possible to, have, to be unable to function in this country and find a new way to talk about that. So can I, j just last question before I open it up. Um, there's another, uh, there's another possible explanation for this. I'm not saying... Uh, I, was, I was reading Ali Smith's wonderful book, uh, Autumn, the other day, and, and she makes this very subtle point, which doesn't make the point, it's a novel, it's not too clunky, but, but in the novel there, there's a thing that plays through this, which is her trying to get a passport from the post office and how unbelievably difficult it is and how she's treated with thinly disguised contempt by the people in the post office who put ever more bureaucratic hurdles in her way as she tries to get her passport renewed. And she clearly links this to disenchantment, you know, that, that if the state treats you day in, day out like shit, you're going to end up not liking the people who run it and not, and not listening to them when they say Brexit's not going to be a very good idea. So it's a very interesting, subtle point. One of the other recurrent questions about the welfare state is why is it you know, whether we talk about it as a, you know, bureaucratic or the notion of delivery as if, and, and all sorts of attempts we made over the years to, def, you know, to say what we should think about it as the relational state. You know, we here at the RSA talk about social productivity, which is the degree to which welfare state summons up people's own capacity for self-help and collective. But yet the welfare state continues to feel very often, notwithstanding austerity, like a bit of a bloody machine that it's not much fun dealing with, and it tends to be a lot more fun, I know this is an old point, to, to deal with Sainsbury's than it is to deal with most parts of the welfare state. Why has that not changed? Why is it still the case that it feels like that? Well, I mean, it's a very good question, to which I don't have an entire answer. But, but, there, is, but, but, there, is, but there is one big difference between the public sector and the private sector, in that the private sector can, in a sense, choose its customers. It can decide who it's going to serve and who it's not going to serve. And the welfare state, by and large, has to take all comers, however awkward or difficult they are. So there's, there's a difference there, which, you know, leads to slightly different behaviours, I think. Um, so, you know, that, that is one crucial distinction. And... Isn't it also the fact that you always have to aspire to uniformity? And that... The, the, that there's, well, this, this, that's part of the same thing, yeah. isn't it? The sort of, you know, it's, it's got to be... People... You don't run differentiated services much within public services. Um, so I think, so I think, so I think it's partly that. Um, let's bring in some other kind of voices in the in, in the room. Yeah, just start there. 
I just wanted, in, in terms of language and so on, <coughs> sorry, Stephen Hickey, I spent most of my career in Social Security, um, as it was then called, um, and one of the things that has changed, I think, is the concept of insurance. I mean, beverage, as I, as I recall it, is very much about insurance, and the national insurance principle, although actually on close inspection, wasn't really insurance as most people would understand it, I suspect was quite an important underpinning of a sense of we were all in this. And I paid my subs, and it was very visible. You went to the post office and you had a stamp and all that stuff. And you visibly paid in, and then equally you had an expectation of getting something out. And I wonder, therefore, if one of the big changes that's happened is this loss of a sense of insurance. And actually that's a design issue, not just a, a, you know, a verbal presentational issue. So Nick, come back on that. And that, that's arguably something that the left has some responsibility for, because uh, go back to the 60s and 70s, it was the left that said we've got to get rid of this notion of kind of reciprocity because it's kind of problematic and instead move to, to you know, move to universalism. But, but yet, in recent years, a lot of people are saying, how can we reintroduce the notion of reciprocity? The really big social security changes has been the decline of the contributory principle, uh, and the fact, and the you know the rise of means-tested benefits, so that people now in work get means-tested benefits, which was never the case back in the 60s and 70s, uh, with a tiny element of fizz, family income supplement, um, and that's a real problem. But but I don't think you can rebuild it because part of the reason it, it declined is once you once you get a much wider spread of income inequality as we have. You know, you've got people in work on tax credits to keep them there, so you can't charge them higher contributions because they can't afford it because you're subsidising their work anyway. And with more people at the higher end of the income, you know, they, the, the old argument against universal benefits was always that the rich, you know, the better off don't need them. When the income distribution is spread like that, that argument becomes more transparent, doesn't it? I mean, it becomes stronger. Uh, so I think it's very, very difficult to rebuild them. But parties are all... Uh, you know, all parties have chipped away for different reasons. So the Tories tended to reduce national insurance benefits so they wanted better targeting on the poor. And Labour undid it by crediting people in or, or removing the requirement to pay a benefit because they wanted to bring in disabled people, they wanted to bring in carers. And so for, for very different motives, both parties gradually just picked it apart. And I think it's really difficult to rebuild. And you kind of see this, don't you, in the notion of conditionality, which is that many of the horror stories, I think you've mentioned them yourself, about the modern welfare state are about the kind of cruel, cruelty of conditionality and uh, fitness for work assessments and all that. But yet again, if you were to say to the public, should people out of work have to do all they can to get work, I think 90% of the public would say, yes, they should. So what do you think of the principle of uh, you know, reciprocity and something for something? I mean, I think it's a really tricky one, and I think I completely agree with Nick's point about income inequality. What does reciprocity mean when people earn so much money at the top end of the scale that actually any sort of contribution and in insurance is meaningless for them? So therefore, they are disconnected from the system. I think that is, in, this is actually partly an answer to your question, because I think that in itself is connected to people at the bottom end of the scale. If people at the top don't support it, they don't need it, 
it's irrelevant to them. I mean, they might give a nod to it if they've got a social conscience, but it doesn't matter to them. So if they're not part of the framing of the argument, then actually the framing of the argument for people at the bottom shifts, and then it becomes much more the onus is, well, you know, where, why should we give you anything if you're not making an effort? I mean, I think there's, you know, very important discussions to be had around perhaps ideas of universal basic income and you know eligibility for universal basic income if you're not in work and you know of course those debates you know are very very important but i think the idea of reciprocity rests equally on the fact that people at the top actually aren't interested they've become disconnected they've floated away from the whole thing i'll bring you in a second Steve. let's just take let me say one more can we, henry you had your hand up yeah in fact what we'll do is we'll take three because we're running out of time, and then, and then respond to these points and anything else you want to say in, in conclusion. Hilary first. So, um, I'm Hilary Cotton. What brilliant panellists. Thank you. I wanted to go to your question, Matthew, which is why does it feel so terrible? I think it feels so terrible because you are treated like shit if you work in the system, which we see in the Ken Loach film. And I think it's interesting that the panellists... I mean, I know some of you, I really admire it, but I think it's all about people on the receiving end. And until we look at the whole system and think about how does it actually feel now to work in the system, it's just not going to function. And I think that goes to the main point, which is what are the stories we're telling? And I've just written my own book on the welfare state, which is called Radical Help. I am not allowed to put, it's going to be published by Little Brown. It doesn't have welfare state in the title because there's a perception that nobody will buy a book about the welfare state. So we somehow, all of us, need to begin to tell Beveridge's story galvanised the nation, didn't it? And the stories we're telling are sort of critiques of that story. We're not telling the story that would be as galvanising for us as, as Beveridge was 75 years ago, I think. I don't know what you all think yeah, about no, that. That's great. And, and, and not, I mean, I, I just comment as you posit the person in front of you. You know, one of the tragedies of the new Labour government was that, that, was that, that it stuffed public service workers' pockets full of money, and they still ended up more pissed off. So um, it's not, sorry, I, I don't know why I started swearing so much, but it's not just about money, is it? You know, it's my age. Right, yes. Um, uh, yes, sort of picks up on that point, Stephen, you talked, and I completely agree about the alarming reversal around social mobility. And I work in the voluntary sector, civil society sector, which has, many feel itself, been co-opted by government to deliver quite big parts of welfare. And I suppose what I see is, and actually, uh, Annie, you mentioned this too, it's become so transactional, we are delivering a commodity rather than it being seen as something that just is innately societal or for the common good. Do you think also that that is a problem? Great. And then, uh, gentleman here. Stephen Hill, I'm a surveyor, but I also have an interest in government, and I worked on uh, Nick Rainsford's uh, local government sounding board uh, back in the early 2000s. And one of the things that came out of that was uh, a, an acknowledgement by politicians of all parties that no political party takes responsibility for educating its councillors and its MPs. So my question is really, do politicians really understand what they're doing? Did John... <laughs> Indeed. I mean, did John Redwood have any idea what the effect of what he was doing? And, you know, Right to Buy was originally an idea that was cooked up by Michael Hazeltine and Peter Walker at a time when the council housing was not paying for itself. It was cheaper to give it away. It was dressed up as something else. Um, uh, property-owning democracy and all that. Um, but, you know, any student, any housing student could tell you 
that in order to have a well-functioning market, housing market that is not volatile, is not prone to inflation, you need an adequate supply of affordable housing. Um, students know stuff that politicians don't. Um, okay, so, so Panda, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back, and, and Nick, I'll bring you and give you the last word, but just on that point, let's remember that, I remember the thing you said to me about Steve Webb and how you've included him in your kind of panoply of great ministers because he did the same job for five years and he knew what he was doing. So I'm interested in your comment about how much that has gone wrong has gone wrong because people didn't bother to really understand it before they... But come back to that end. But, but Anna, pick any of those comments and give us a closing remark. Yeah, Sorry. I, I really agree so much with what you say. I mean, it is shocking that the people who should be well, I think the most expert are so utterly ill-informed. And if we take just the example of housing benefit, when this whole idea of moving away from bricks to benefits, you know, not building and uh, basically providing uh, social housing through housing benefit really was introduced, Sir George Young was the housing minister and he said the famous phrase for the kind of nerds who know about housing not the ministers I doubt the famous phrase was housing benefit will take the strain okay housing benefit had therefore to pay for it and so how we can have had a system introduced progressively over the last seven eight years where actually housing benefit has been cut to the extent where people can't afford to live in social housing in the private rented sector is is unbelievable really and i do really wonder whether or not any of those decision makers have really studied that history and a lot of endorsements for your book here <laughs> Some degree, I think there's a lot, actually in all of those points, I think there is, we're working towards the same basic thing, is that what the welfare state was about with the insurance, I mean, this is, I hadn't read Beveridge until I wrote this book, was the idea that he said that um, it would be cheaper. The reason he wanted to do this is it's going to be cheaper to take the cost away from the employer and take the cost away from the employee, and the government can look after that. It will save us all money, which is clearly the case. And that was that idea of the insurance was, was just for us all to do better. Um, and what, what, that was also part of, was again, what, what you were saying, Hilary, about, about the dream, is that there was a dream of where Britain was going to be, and that welfare was a part of that. What, we, what we're now in a situation with is, is the move from the state helping people to get on their feet and do something great has deteriorated to such a degree that if you want to go and work on an oil rig or if you want to go and work on a building site, you have to pay for your own training. So if you're unemployed... You can only get a qualified job if you pay your own money. It will cost you £2,000 to get a licence to go on an oil rig as a labourer. No one on benefits can afford that. The state does not help you. It will not help you, which is crazy, because in so, a proper form of insurance would be, if you, why not retrain you? Why not? It would be so much cheaper to retrain someone than it would be to have the situation we are. And that idea about, I think, the thing you're saying, Hilary, and, and I mean, in fact, everything here, about the... About the, the, the what the voluntary sector can do, I think, is amazing. Uh, uh, not because it's in the book, but the, the final chapter of the book, I meet people in the voluntary sector across the UK who are effectively single-handedly solving these problems. I mean, if we had, on the stage, we had the four people that I speak to in the back of the book, we would walk away thinking, actually, you know what, it's fine. It's fine. Not only is it fine, it's going to get better. And that's because I think part of exactly what Hillary said, part of what we're saying is how bad it is. And we're saying how bad it is because it is bad. And we're saying, you know, listen, things have changed. Things are not the way you thought they are. They're getting worse. Historically, it may be that this is a blip. There is another way in which this is just the beginning, is the way in which this is a trend downwards. We've got a situation where Bright House 
a company that makes poor people pay four times the value of a good that any of us could do on, on, on an internet shop is funded by the Queen. What relationship do you have with the state if the Queen is dodging tax and funding a company that rips you off? How can that be a reasonable way to run a society? How can you feel included? I'm nearly there. We, <laughs> and we don't see each other anymore. <laughs> well, yes, uh, with all due respect to Her Majesty. <laughs> yes. um, and we don't see each other anymore. That's the thing. We don't see that we're part of a society. We don't see we're in common. That ultimately, I suppose, is the victory of Thatcherism, that we are, we are, that she, we laughed at, I laughed at the time. But no, she managed to get us to believe that we're not a society, but we are. And so these people out there on the ground doing things, they don't think, oh, well, this is a terrible let's... They know where they want their area to be. They know what dreams they've got for the kids. They know how to move forward. And that is the next argument. The next argument is for us to say, you know, it could be so much better. It would be cheaper if it was so much better. Look at what we could do. Look at these companies we could create. Look at this wealth we could generate. We can be amazing. We are lions led by donkeys. And unless we do something about it, we are going to go and fall off the Spanish Tower. You know, it's, it's, that's, why we need, that's why we're shouting now, because we need to act. Nick, follow that. You've got two minutes. <laughs> can I, um, just one, one it's not, I mean, Mistakes and all that sort of stuff. In the book, you say uh, the history of the welfare state is the history of, of un, you know, unforeseen consequences. There are unforeseen consequences. Things do indeed. You, you, you do a policy in the best of all faith and it all goes terribly wrong on you. And that happens quite regularly. But it's sometimes responding to, um, to actually what are secular trends. So to go back to your housing point, you know, right to buy, uh, the Labour Party ahead of that election was looking at lifetime enfranchisement of council houses and indeed some, of the, some people across them were arguing for sales. The difference is the Tories did it and Labour didn't and that wrote a whole chunk of history. All these people voted Tory and you know, it's not my job to defend Conservative politicians but in defence of Heseltine, when Right to Buy started, he ruled that councils could spend half the proceeds on new build and as soon as he went, the Treasury took that away. And part of the reason why housing benefit is these days running up a down escalation is we haven't built enough houses. So, you know, you can, you can have a... That's very interesting, Nick, because I know we've got 30 seconds. Universal credit, it's the same story. A policy is designed with certain financial assumptions. Mm. The Treasury then comes along and says, you can have the policy, but you can no longer have, have the, the money. money yeah. uh, that's a recur is that a recurrence? Yeah, no, it happens quite a lot, yeah. Well, it's not surprising things go wrong, then, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that bombshell. <laughs> How could I not have been, how could I have been so stupid? Um, well, we could go on talking for hours and hours. It's been an absolutely brilliant uh, uh, conversation. Um, you can get books by Anna, by Stephen, and by Nick uh, outside, including the book we've been particularly talking about, which is Nick's voluminous, wonderful, brilliant history of welfare. So you just should have. You just, just have it on your bookcase so that you can look up anything at any point if you want. You're just there. Your bookcase might collapse, but, um, but it's a fantastic book. So uh, thank you all for coming. It's been a wonderful conversation. Please join me in thanking Nick, Anna, and Stephen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.